Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world, welcome to the show. This is the Millennial Millionaire Podcast, and I am your host, Stephen Cohen. This podcast is focused on bringing some of the wisest minds from across the globe to discuss concepts, strategies, and ideals that will lead them to be top performers in their respective industries and their lives. This show is for the millennials and millennials at heart to transcend their mindset, their health, and their income to the next level. We are so excited to have you on this journey with us. Welcome to the show. Millennial Billionaires, welcome back to the show. I am your host, Stephen Cohen, and today we have another amazing guest with an amazing story. Today we have Mr. Bo Theed. Bo is a serial entrepreneur and startup investor. He founded one of the largest student travel companies in North America back in 2010, just college. He's a current franchise owner of five Crumble Cookies location all up and down the Midwest. And he most recent venture, he is a founder of the company All Roads Travel, which is the largest student travel company across the country. Bo is an amazing dude, a good friend of mine, and just super excited to have you on the show, man. Thanks yeah, for thanks thank for making you. the time. I appreciate you. I know me. you're busy, man. Your phone's been getting blown up ever since you walked in. So today's been one of those days. One of those days, man. Well, hopefully, I can make it a little better. Thank you, <laughs> Bo. For a those nice that little break in the day. Exactly, man. Uh, Bo, for those that don't know who you are, maybe uh, give a quick little intro about who you are, what you're about, and uh, we'll hop into it. Yeah, my name is Bo Theed. Uh, moved to Vegas about 10 years ago. Uh, relocated <clears throat> my first company, Just College, to Vegas because we were traveling so many students to Vegas. Uh, and I was lucky enough to be naive and stubborn enough out of college to start a company. Um, luckily, it worked out. Went one for one. Uh, and then just found a passion and love for, for working hard and, you know, I guess creating your path and creating your journey. And so that's what I love to do. I love to to run businesses, find new visions, verticals to jump into. And at the same time, personal life, it's all about golf, skiing, snowboarding, and spending time with the family and my wife. Just having a good time. It's funny, man, because uh, we met maybe two or three years ago. Um, you know, your wife I, I met in college. And before I knew who you were, I've heard of your company or your, your previous company, Just College, you're a little older than me, and that was the big company, the big travel company, taking people all around the country, having a good old time. Where did the desire for entrepreneurship come from, and how did you get attracted into that space specifically? It's a good question. So, you know, I was always, as an employee, you know, I wasn't exactly the most studious person, but I found I was, I was pretty, I had a pretty good work ethic throughout all my jobs, and it kind of started in college uh, when I was a freshman at CU Boulder. Uh, another student started a <clears throat> an online food ordering company before the Uber Eats and the Postmates and stuff. Saw what he was doing. I loved it. And I said, hey, I think you can do a better job marketing this. Let me jump in and market the company for you. I uh, did that for three years and, and loved working for myself and seeing the results. Uh, what I did while a college student you know, yielded tremendous value. And I didn't know what I wanted to do after college and met up with some of my buddies over Thanksgiving. And it dawned on the idea of let's start a college company because as a 22-year-old, you, when you're graduating, you have the fear of the real world. And so creating a business surrounding college students kind of sounded fun at the time. Totally. It's so interesting to me because there's so many people, you know, you guys at a Thanksgiving, but there's so many friends, whether they're in college, out of college, that are... They always had the desire, hey, we want to start a company, a clothing line, an online business, like all these things. What do you think separated you guys, your friends that turned into business partners and the other thousands of college students or college graduates that have the idea to go out there and get into entrepreneurship and start a business uh, versus you guys actually executing and creating one of the biggest industries in that niche? What was the difference maker? What do you think? Uh, Why did you guys make it happen and everyone else did it? I think it's a combination of work ethic and refusal to give up. Um, you know, there's some people that didn't last that started the company originally. And, you know, part of it is kind of like accepting you may not make good money for a period of time, but if you're confident in yourself and you're willing to go through the ups and downs for multiple years and not see your bank account grow, but deplete. Um, I think it's just the work ethic, refusing to give up and, kind of being hard-headed enough to think your shit don't stink. Hmm. 
What is what does that look like? So you and your buddies are at Thanksgiving. You have this idea to start this travel company. Where do you go from there? Is it create the LLC, start marketing it, figuring out a name? Because I feel like in today's age specifically, obviously you started this almost a decade ago, but everyone I talk to nowadays, whether it's people I have on the show or even buddies of mine, everyone's talking about you know online businesses, drop shipping, cryptocurrency. I feel like there's not as many millennials out there creating actual businesses, actual true businesses that aren't just uh, e-commerce stores. So what does that process look like from idea to starting to execute to materializing an actual business? It's a great question, and I don't think there's a perfect answer to it. Um, the main thing that I th think while we found our success is we were willing to pivot. Mm. Uh, and if we had a vision of what it meant to be, but if something came up and you were willing to take it in a different direction, that's how we became successful. So initially it was the business plan. We had a vision. We had an idea. And every six months or a year, that vision would change and we'd be dynamic enough and comfortable enough to kind of leave what we had behind to pursue you know, what we saw in front of us at that given moment. And so that's kind of how it started. We didn't start off as originally as a travel company. And after failing numerous times in the, in the vertical we were, we were pursuing, we ended up transitioning to a travel company two years later. Hmm. During that process, was there a point or a stage or a certain amount of revenue, a certain amount of EBITDA, where it went from an idea or a potential startup business to, hey, we can actually turn this into something really big, as you guys did? Yeah, the, the, I mean, you had your ups and downs, you had your good years, you had your years where you ran out of money. Um, okay. I think it really started to hit when I was able to pay myself a comfortable am amount. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and when you saw the business growing, the revenue growing, you made your mistakes, you spent too much money. Um, but I, I truly believe it was when we hit a, a certain amount and we weren't concerned and we weren't having to go through layoffs. And after three, four years of making next to nothing to have a comfortable salary was where it was like, okay, we, we got something brewing here. Yeah. I think there's a big misconception with business owners because, you know, you hear, hey, this company is making, you know, millions of dollars of revenue or this company is making X, Y, and Z. But in reality, just because you're making a lot of revenue doesn't necessarily mean the owners are making that much money. You know, I'd probably argue there's plenty of business owners out there that businesses are successful, but their actual take-home profit isn't much. How did you guys, you and your partners, navigate through still paying your bills, still, you know, obviously having a decent quality of life while reinvesting back into the business? How do we balance it? Yes. It was a tough balance because we were young, <laughs> inexperienced. Um, you know, I, I guess it's knowing what your what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are. That is one of my weaknesses, and so it, it wasn't exactly my wheelhouse. You know, obviously we'd make collective decisions together, but we focused on each other's strengths and weaknesses, and, and focused in the areas that we were good at. And so my expertise was expansion, was in sales, was bringing in revenue, was figuring out ways to to increase the value of our product. In terms of just like a better experience where students would come back, refer, they came back saying they had the best week of their life. Um, and so it's just, you know, a fine balance of having good people that have the same vision, have the same common goal, that are team oriented, um, and kind of having your like your base and your roots planted. Uh, <clears throat> you know, when it was difficult, right? Like the student travel industry is a, is a cutthroat industry. And so... You know, you got to figure out, hey, these two, you know, you have a price point. There's there's a max price point. You don't want to overcharge. You don't want to rip them off. But at the same time, you have to to maintain a level quality of product where the students want to return, where you can grow the business, you can grow the volume in the individual accounts, which were different universities for us. Yeah. No, I think it's so interesting because I have seven business partners in my solar company, and none of them I knew pre-getting into solar. Um, I wish, you know, maybe in the future I can launch some businesses with friends from high school or friends from college, but it just didn't work out that way. How was balancing the relationship between being friends in college and having that relationship versus being business owners? Because I feel like everyone's dream and goal is to create a business with their friends, but when actual push comes to shove, they find their values and their vision and work ethic is a bit different. That is 100% accurate. 
Um, it's very challenging to get into business with, with friends. I'm in business now with my wife, but I think it's making us stronger. Yeah, but, you know, it, it's definitely tough to manage. Uh, if you're going in as best friends, it's, it's very hard to maintain that. So you just need to figure out what, what's important. And what was most important to us is we still maintained a level of, like, respect because luckily both of us had the proper work ethic. Uh, but, you know, you had a, an end goal, and, and our goal was to build something that's never been built before in the student travel industry. And as long as we found ourselves getting to a, a, a certain volume or certain uh, market share um, while paying ourselves well, you know, that was our end goal, and that's all that mattered. Mm. Can you touch a little bit on, you mentioned before, you know, one of your strengths wasn't the financing aspect and, you know, your strength is the visionary and maybe marketing and similar things to me. How important is it when you're getting into business or if you're creating a team to be one aware of your strengths and weaknesses and also the value of being able to find other people that maybe complement your weaknesses and, and help you double down on your strengths? Oh, it's it's crucial. Uh, I mean, it's. I think it's extremely important to understand your weaknesses, be okay with it, be vulnerable with it. It's not a bad thing. You can tunnel vision and know what you're good at. Um, you know, and I think the, the people that have been the most successful as entrepreneurs are the people that can build a good culture, find people that are much better than them at their weaknesses, which hopefully is easy to do, um, hone in on them, treat them well, uh, and, and a team is crucial. You can't do everything by yourself. Uh, and so having people buy into that vision, buy into that culture, buy into what you're building and, and be willing to go to war with you um, is critical. And so it comes down to interviewing, uh, training and, you know, culture is everything where, you know, everyone loves working together. You have, you know, a fine line between personal and work life, uh, but you're building a family at the same time. Yeah. No, I would love that. Even in my own business, you know, that's the thing that we focus the most on culture. You know, I, I believe attitude reflects leadership. You know, the leaders, the owners, the the people that are navigating the company typically set the landscape and the culture and the attitude of their employees. And if you're not able to facilitate a abundance type of environment when things get hard, which obviously they do, we'll talk about failure and that relationship, especially with startups. If you're not able to create a culture of winning and a culture of trust where your employees trust that you have their best interest, as you know, things aren't going to work out when the going gets tough. Exactly. Because you have your tough days, you have your tough weeks. And when people are down, you need to rally together. You need to rally the troops. Um, and so it's important because at, at any point, any people have opportunity. And if you have people on your team that are talented, really good at what they do. Eventually, they're going to get recruited. And some people will forego a pay increase because they're very happy in their current environment and they're treated well. They have a good work-life balance. And, you know, it's, it's so it's important through those ups and downs. You celebrate the ups. You get down and dirty during the downs. And, you know, when everyone feels like they're part of something that's moving forward, you know, most people enjoy that and aren't just looking to to make an extra buck. Mm. How do you create that? Because I, I think that's really important for anyone, whether you're a business owner, whether you're running a sales team, whether you're leading a family, being able to cultivate that environment that it's not just a job. You're just not an employee. You're just not making cookies every single day. You're part of something bigger than yourself. Therefore, that person is willing to go above and beyond. In your experience running multiple different companies, exiting some of them, how do you create that environment for your employees and people that you need, obviously, to get the job done to produce at a high level? I think one is it's, it's owning your work. <clears throat> so if you have you know a team of people who, who own their work, if you're not having to micromanage them, if, if they're doing what they do in a day and they're, they have a reputation of always getting it done, you give them some freedom. Um, so time off, um, maternity leave, paternity leave, uh, they want to go on a vacation. Um, you know, having that flexibility to trust that they're going to do what they need to do. They can go away for a bit. Family's important, outside life, fun times, going out for happy hour, drinks, traveling together. Luckily we've been in the travel industry, so we've, we have vacations kind of while we're working, uh, so I think it's just allowing people to find what's important to them outside of work 
and giving them the proper time to to I guess go after you know the things that make them happy. Yeah. Have you heard about what uh, Amazon just did, like their uh, incentive leave program? I have not. So I just found about this yesterday. I thought it was really interesting. Um, all the kind of sub-level employees from Amazon last week got an email basically incentivized from Amazon. The subject of the email said, please don't accept this, but they were offering $5,000 for their employees to essentially leave the company and go figure out what they want to do with their life. And about 80% of the workforce actually said no to that. And the interesting thing about the study is because they said no, they were actually choosing to be here and neglecting the incentive, their level of commitment, their level of productivity, and their level of enjoyment for the job actually went up. And I thought it was a very interesting experiment giving people the option and incentivize them to leave to go figure out what they want, essentially giving them that freedom like you just touched on and the counter result of them actually creating more buy-in to the company. Exactly. Exactly. Because you have people that go do their eight to five job, um, but you want to build a team that's willing to look at an email at seven, answer a call at 8 p.m., answer a call on a Sunday, take a call while they're on vacation because things come up, shit happens, problems arise, some problems are urgent, some aren't as urgent. And, it, and if you do have that kind of flexibility in, in the work-life balance and the culture you've built, you'll naturally find yourself team solving problems quicker than normal when most people just get away and they shut it off. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, especially, you know, people listening to this and, you know, we're all young, but I feel like our parents' generation, the baby boomers and older, it was just a very toxic workforce to the point where I know my parents, I don't know about anyone else listening, but they were going to work and it was a negative environment. They didn't want to be there. They weren't paid right. They had no flexibility. They were treated like a number and not as an individual. And I feel like as the younger generation starts getting in and starts leveling up in business, we realize the value of creating that environment for people. And the crazy thing about that is when you give people more flexibility and more um, options to live their life at a higher level and use the job or the employment as something as just a vehicle to make them better, not necessarily something that they're crutched on if they're out of line and get fired. I think overall you get better performance and people are just happier. 100% accurate. That's why there's <clears throat> numerous studies out that say a four-day work week is more efficient than a five-day work week. People enjoy their potential three-day weekends and they'll get more done in those four days than in five days. Mm. Yeah, no. I'm curious. So you launched this company in 2010. You were probably in your early 20s at the time. I was still in high school. I graduated 2011. Um, one thing that I had challenges with when I first got into entrepreneurship, I started entrepreneurship at 23 years old. I was leading people that was far older than me, 40, 50, 60 years old. And I remember always this self-limiting belief of I'm not – I'm not old enough. I don't have enough experience. Who am I to think that I can create success or build this to X, Y, and Z? Did you and your partners ever feel that imposter syndrome because of your age when you first launched the company? Not, I don't, I don't think we had that perspective because our, <clears throat> we couldn't, our, our team was all very young. Mm. We were selling trips to college students. We were new. We were building a new culture, so we were hiring a lot of people out of college. So I think the majority of our workforce at the beginning was was definitely in their 20s. And eventually, yeah, we expanded out to having people, you know, 10, 20, 30 years older than us. Um, at, at the beginning, it was like, this is a, this is a little weird. Um, but I think by building that positive culture, you had people's buy-in. And so it kind of eliminated that age gap and that age difference. And I really think it started, you know, because we're millennials, you know, with the work ethic, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I'd say like work ethic is something that's becoming more rare. Uh, and so I, I that, that developed a respect of, you know, what may our elders or the people that were in it with us. Uh, <clears throat> and they saw that grind and again, it, it didn't feel awkward, did not feel weird. Um, because again, we were all having a good time doing what we were doing. Mm. Why do you think that? Why do you think that work ethic is becoming more rare as time goes on? <laughs> That's a difficult question. Um, <clears throat> because I agree with you. I agree with you 100%. I think our older generation, maybe they didn't have the level of 
work-life balance that we do, but they worked really hard. And I believe now it's social media and, you know, the microwave effect and instant gratification. I think work ethic is starting to diminish because of the perception of online and social media. But I know work ethic is something you value highly. And for us, it's good, right? Because as entrepreneurs or people out there in business, the less work ethic, the less competition, the easier it is for us. But for those listening, how important is work ethic and why do you think it's not as valued as it was back in the day? I think it could be one of the most important characteristics because even if you're not good at something, if you're working harder than the person next to you or your competitor or whoever it is, eventually by working harder, you'll catch up to them and then pass them at lightning speed and Mm. they'll never catch up because it hasn't been in their blood. Uh, But I mean, that's probably a good point. And, you know, it's it may be technology, you know, people's it's easier to get answers online. You know, we didn't have that growing up. There wasn't real. I mean. Google wasn't something that was easily available. And so people have answers at their fingertips and they see all these people, you know, especially with, with Instagram and TikTok, people's easy access to develop an influencer network where people are getting paid hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars to do a post. People always want that easy path, that easy out, you know, and for the majority, you know, that's a path that's, that's near impossible. And so, you know, it's all about being, being an expert in your craft and whatever you're doing, and usually you can't get there without practice, right? Professional athletes, yeah, rarely you have the ones that are naturally gifted, but the most of the ones that are the most successful are the ones that are working on their game consistently day after day after day. Yeah. We, you've heard the adage, work smarter, not harder. You know, some people, you know, work, obviously you want both, work smart and hard. What is What is your relationship with smart and hard work, and how does someone balance that to make sure they're being efficient? I think working hard is probably a start. And then naturally over time, looking, learning how to be more efficient and how to get more in a, done in a given day, in a given hour. Uh, I think if you can accomplish both, you're going to be very good at what you do. Um, but the you know, working smarter can be learned. Working harder is just something you have to commit yourself to. Um, and so, again, we're, uh, it's inc- incredibly important. You can have someone that works hard that doesn't get anything done in a day, but you have somebody that's much more efficient with their time, is good at organizing, is good at time management, is good at prioritizing. Uh, I think that's something that's a lost art is <clears throat> you're given a duty of 10 tasks and you don't understand what, you know, which one to crack out first. And if you, know, if you have something come up, oh, my ninth priority, my ninth task, I need to be all over. I need to finish today. And this one can be pushed to the side. Got it. So just college, you built it eight years, nine years. I believe it was 2018. You had your exit. You know, you you invested sweat, uh, blood and tears into this thing. And eventually you exited for a, a healthy eight figure amount. Can you walk us through that process? I guess my first question is, was the goal to always sell it? Was that the vision as you guys started to mature the company? And what did that process look like? The goal was to always sell it. <clears throat> the student travel industry is tough. Yeah, you know, you're you're working with college students. Um, it's a difficult industry. It's very cutthroat. There's a lot of competition. Uh, it's very heavy relationship based. Um, and at any given, mo- there's not much loyalty mm. because there's a lot of turnover. So our goal was to always sell it, and it was definitely a rough battle. You know, there was a lot of highs, but more lows. Uh, and so we, you know, we kept battling through it, but we had times where like, oh my gosh, can we get out? When do we get out? And so a couple things fell through when we were looking to sell a couple years prior. <clears throat> and then in 2018, just the timing was right. We got approached. Um, and the sale, was, you know, it was definitely time consuming. Uh, I think it took about eight months from the moment we decided like this is going to happen to officially get you know, pen to paper. Um, it, it, my advice is get in, incredibly good lawyers. Mm. <laughs> They're worth the good money. <laughs> well worth the money. Uh, and make sure you protect yourself. You know, if I could go back, I made some mistakes, but that's okay. You, you just got to learn from your mistakes, grow from them, don't repeat them. Um, but yeah, it was definitely, you know, an interesting new learning experience for me. Um, selling the company and then all of a sudden not being the boss. Yeah. So I, I think I remember when you sold or we spoke briefly after that, you were 
Because I, I think everyone, the goal to create some type of business is to eventually sell it and get an exit. You know, you, you hear all these uh, unicorn stories of, you know, I, I, sold, you know I, I built this company for 10 years, I sold it, and now I'm on a beach, uh, you know, smoking a doobie and, and chilling in, in Fiji, right? That's kind of like the, the ideal or at least the perception. But, you know, as you know, that's, that's normally not the case. After you sold, you obviously got a liquidation of cash. What did that process look like? Like, how were you feeling? You work eight years for this dream, for this goal, for your first big home run. You get this money that hits your account. Was it bittersweet? Were you sad? Was it was it a sign of relief? Like, what did that experience look like for those listening to hopefully be able to replicate that in their own businesses? Yeah. I've, uh, I'm a cancer. I'm an emotional guy. Yeah, same. So I probably had every type of emotion in the book um at the most it was fulfilling mm. um feeling like you achieved something it was not easy you know reminiscing about all the good times and, and mostly about the bad and like pushing through it and perseverance i think is what i was most proud of but it's tough to look back at eight years and remember all those moments and so what i've learned is to cherish cherish the highs celebrate them because there's going to be a low coming and I want to feel this way again. So, I mean, it was very rewarding. It was very exciting to see the bank account grow. Um, got to buy for some f- some fun toys and invest some money. Uh, and, you know, the level of comfort. Like, I, I'm going to be okay. I'll be okay for quite some time. Um, and it was just excitement to kind of see the new journey, the new path, and, and really, like, let's get back to it because I, I want this again. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's powerful, man. In my business in sales, you see someone maybe make a $20,000 a month or a $10,000 paycheck, and you see them take their foot off the gas. You see, I think everyone has a number or a lifestyle or a car where once they receive it or once they earn it, it feels like they sell out a little bit on their vision and dream. Did you ever feel that way? Or when the money hit your account and you had that exit, were you like, okay, what's next? And if that was the case, how do you cultivate that? And what is that? Is that hunger? Is it vision? Is it having such a strong goal and why and vision for your life that that was more of a milestone? Or what was that? I think sports taught me a lot. Um, You know, I I was a decent athlete. I quit basketball too early because I'm short. (laughs) <laughs> didn't see a future and I regretted it. Uh, it's like, hey, I quit this too early. And so why quit your career too early? Um, you know, and I think people like me too, you know, naturally there's burnouts. Yeah. You get overworked, you find yourself, you get exhausted, but it's like, how do you get yourself out of that hole? How do you pick yourself up? How do you figure out you're in a rut? Like what tendencies do you go through and then re-motivating yourself. And, and I go through that, whether it's every couple months, every six months, every single year, I'll have a low week. But luckily, I notice it rather quickly. And I'm like, hey, I haven't achieved everything I wanted to achieve. I want to keep going. I want to have more success stories. I want to build more wealth. I want to buy more things. I want to p- provide comfort for my family. Um, and so I think it's like part of, you know, being short, little man syndrome and yeah. wanting to prove to the world you can do more. Uh, you know, I want to look back and I don't want to be a one shot wonder. I want to look back when I'm old, when I'm retired and look back at the various, you know, decades that I've lived and, and have a highlight of each one. Yeah, no, that's powerful. Uh, the, the one shot wonder concept, because I think anyone in the right situation or right timing or right industry or right call can create success. I think sustaining it and doing it again is a, is another, is another story. You know, we've all heard of the crypto millionaires or people that, you know, put $100,000 in Apple and, you know, a 10x or whatever the case is, but then they're never able to duplicate that success or go do it in another industry, I believe, because they haven't acquired the skills, the belief, the value, all the non-tangibles that, you know, you, you just can't, you can't learn without going through the challenges and failure. I know starting any business, there's massive challenges, there's massive ups and downs, especially startups. You know, I think it, I think it's 97% of startups fail in the first three years or some ridiculous number. What do you think your perception was when you got into the business that allowed you to look at the failure as something that wasn't going to define you and something that wasn't going to prevent you from building this, but actually the opposite and shifting that relationship to it? It's a combination of being okay with failure. 
Um, <laughs> I'm super competitive, yeah. <laughs> so I hate to lose. So if I fail, I'm not I'm not happy about it. It's like now, how do I go win? Mm. Um, is the way I look at it. So I've failed a ton of times in my life, and whether it's been like in parts of the business, you know. But I, most people fail, and you know, there's a lot of people out there that failed fail five times, but their six was the unicorn, and they crushed it. And I think a lot of people will potentially give up after their first failure. Or like in the midst of their work life, they had one failure, so it's hard to get out of that rut. So I think it's just, you know, waking up, being confident in yourself and saying, I'm willing to fail a hundred times to succeed once. Yeah. Yeah, that's the the Michael Jordan, right? You need to, you know, shoot a hundred to to hopefully get that that one in. Uh, if it's okay with you, let's talk about investing a little bit. You know, I know you obviously have the crumble investments. I'm actually an investment investor with you, which we'll we'll get into. When you had that exit and you received that that compensation did you know what to do with the money right away did you you know save your for a little bit did you put some in stocks did you put some back into the business i feel like when all people get a lump sum of money and that is obviously different you know most people aren't exiting for an eight-figure exit but even as small as ten thousand or twenty thousand or thirty thousand dollars immediately they go spend it they lose it and they don't allow that nest egg to uh, appreciate into bigger things long term what was that investment strategy look like? And what advice can you give to people on the investment side to create long-term success and not just flex culture success? Mm -hmm. Well, if you're not good at it, find someone that's good at it mm -hmm. <clears throat> that you can pay to take your money and, and do smart things with it that you obviously oversee. Uh, you know, I, I've been investing since I've been 18 years old. I've had some big hits. I was lucky enough to get into Facebook, Meta now, Tesla back in the day. And so, you know, kind of mine was a little bit of gut, but I also had enough experience. But at the same time, I allocate a lot of money to to people that are professionals at this. Uh, and then I have my like fun play money. Mm -hmm. And whether that's me buying things that make me happy or investing in things that like I'm passionate about. And so some of it was stocks uh, with certain companies. I kind of take the risk, risk investments. And then I let my team take the safe investments, so I'll be fine. Mm. Uh, so I have, it's basically like gambling. I, I'm not a gambler, but you have amount, you're okay with losing. Um, you know, and sometimes you'll get lucky. So stocks, I did a good amount of real estate. Uh, and then being an entrepreneur, I, I threw some money into, you know, a decent amount of startups. So it was kind of just preparing to be diverse. Uh, and so I felt like those various <clears throat> verticals were smart. Some of them have been hits, some of them have been misses. Uh, but at the same time, I'm I'm comfortable enough because I know <clears throat> these guys have it under control. They'll invest it into safe bonds, safe mutual funds, uh, life insurance. And so I've, I've kind of gone around the, the full wheel. Uh, <clears throat> and then I've invested different amounts. But I've invested probably the majority of my cash into to various real estate projects. Yeah, real estate. Where did the investing mindset come from? You said you've been investing since you've been 18, which is young. Did that come from your parents? Did that come from a mentor when you were younger? Or did you just know, hey, in order to create freedom and create the life I want, I need to learn how to invest? Uh, it came from parents and my grandparents. Uh, <clears throat> so my grandparents, you know, started a, a little Schwab fund mm. with indexes that were passed over to me at 18. And when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is great. Yeah. I'm interested in it. I love it. I was 18 years old. I felt like I knew everything, so I was like, I'm going to bet on some companies. <laughs> so that's kind of just how, and to be, when I graduated, college was amidst the 2018 financial crisis. And so my dad, I, when I saw the money, I wanted to take some money out and spend it. He's like, don't touch it. Uh, <clears throat> and I think that was a big learning lesson is, is leave it in. Eventually it'll go up. Um, and so as the, in 2009 is when I really started getting into it, and I was fortunate enough to to invest in some companies, you know, during the lull of 2008, you know, when the stock market was way down. Yeah. And so I saw it appreciate rather quickly and I was like, holy shit. Okay. Maybe I should learn how to know how to do this a little bit better. Um, and so I think it was part of timing. And then, you know, I was, I was fortunate enough to have family that had, you know, decades of experience doing it. Yeah. And I, I think that's a really good lesson for those listening is, when opportunities like that come to invest in the Facebooks of the 21st century or the big hits that you know are going to work, you need to have some type of resources. You know, you could see the best opportunity ever, but if you don't have liquidity, if you don't have money in your account to actually act on that, 
then you're kind of just like everyone else that doesn't take action on it. So I think it's super important to your point, diversity. You know, if you're investing heavy in certain aspects, always have a little bit of money left over in order to have those once in a lifetime opportunities so you don't regret it uh, later on. Yeah. And, you know, and I, and I think that's something like for for the younger individuals out there, the reality is, is you're a little bit more in tune with the technology, the come ups, the new companies that are catering to, you know, people in their teenage years, early 20 years, like eventually you're just going to get older and you're going to be outdated. Mm. Right. Like, I don't know how to use TikTok. Yeah, I know it's great <laughs> and it works for people, but I don't I don't care to learn it. Um, and there's going to be an age where we don't know how to do things that the younger generation does. And if you guys can find companies that you're passionate about, you see a future for, you're going to learn and know about these companies well before, you know, people in their 30s, 40s and 50s. And that's how I got lucky with Facebook. I saw it at the beginning. I believed in it and I jumped on it. And my best investments were probably in between the ages of 18 and 25 years old. Mm, well said. Yeah, the younger generation definitely has more of a pulse. Uh, but what do you think about social media? Is it is it a hammer to destroy or a hammer to build? <laughs> I think it, it, it's both. Yeah. Um, I'm not the greatest at it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I get kind of lost in it, so it distracts me a little bit. So I try to stay away from it. Like I've deleted Instagram before, and now I'm back on it. But it's I mainly just look at things for for information. Um, it can be very valuable, you know. To certain people, but I think it creates a, like in certain aspects, it creates a false hope because a lot of it's fake. Um, people are showing their best self, not their true self. Highlight reel. Exactly. And so, you know, again, depending on what your life entails and involves, it can either be massively important or it can be a distraction. And for me personally, it's a distraction. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I go on Instagram fast as well. You know, I have to like... You know, with the podcast and me now getting more into content for my brand, I feel like I have to be on it. But if I catch myself on it too often, I catch myself comparing, I, I catch myself falling into the drift and it's just not, you know, it's not productive. So you sold your company in 2018, shortly after you launched Crumble uh, franchises in 2019. From 2018, after exiting the last eight years of your career to 2019, what did that process looks like? Look like? Did you know you wanted to get into the franchise business, or did you take some time to figure out what your next move was? Yeah, good question. So, <clears throat> when you sell a company, um, either you can have a cash out and you're done, and you're not involved in the post acquisition. But, but for most acquisitions, you have an, an earnout period and period you have to work for the companies for however long it may be, year, three, four years. Um, I had an earnout period, uh, so an incentive to stay. Um, so no, I wasn't ever thinking I would jump into something else because I wanted kind of to finish my tenure and and make sure the business was continuing in the right direction so I could make my full earnout and acquisition cost. Yeah, question on that. Is there, in an acquisition like that, are there certain metrics that you still have to maintain? And if not, does the original deal start to go off the table or, or what does that look like? Obviously it's structured so different per, per Yeah, deal. there's various ways to structure. That's why having a good lawyer is extremely important. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> there's an initial cash out. Um, and so it could be structured many ways. You can get a little bit of a discount if you're like, just pay me, I'm done. Uh, but then you could potentially find yourself earning more if you're willing to stick around. And mm. then there's metrics that you have to hit. And if you don't hit those metrics, you, your, your sale price gets diluted a little bit or your cash proportion based on the equity you own. Uh, so it was, it was worthwhile for me based on the way we structured it to stay, produce well, uh, so I could reach my full potential on what we sold the company for. Yeah, that makes sense. So there's obviously a vesting period. Did that finish and then you started looking for other opportunities or did Crumble kind of just fall on your plate? Fell on my plate. So, you know, not every acquisition goes smoothly. Um, <clears throat> you know, I'd say most of the time it's not like rainbows and butterflies. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, things were going well. They went well for, you know, a period of time. And then I had a year that it wasn't going well. We weren't meshing and that's okay. Um, and so I was at the point where, you know, there wasn't really a point for me to work as hard as I was working. Uh, so I took a step back. Um, and during that time, I was, you know, mentally trying to prepare myself is, am I still going to do the student travel industry? Am I still going to sell to college students? Am I still going to oversee this? I've been doing this for 10 years. I'm getting a little tired. Uh, and... <laughs> I wasn't working full time and 
it, it was enjoyable, but it kind of, I kind of got antsy. Mm. Um, I was like, what's next? I need to figure out something. And it just fell into my lap. I've always been interested in the franchising world. And lucky enough, Crumble, the first location outside of Utah was in Vegas. My wife is much better at social media than I am. Um, and <clears throat> my wife's name's Anime. Shout out Anime. And, uh, and after she got us Crumble for the first time, but it was so far away from her house, so it was a journey to go get to it. <clears throat> and then we were picking up our, our puppy, and we were passing Crumble, and we had it. Again, I looked at her. I was like, well, we should look at this. This is a franchise and look into it. And for the past couple of weeks, I was looking at other various brands. We applied, somehow got through the process, got approved. They were sold out of Vegas, and we said, where aren't you sold out of? And we looked at a map, we picked Chicago, and I've been fortunate enough to have her by my side. I've kind of like built the vision, picked the locations, raised the money, kind of got it started. And then once they're open, she oversees and runs them. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I love Crumble Cookie. <laughs> they're addicting. Um, I think everyone out there has the idea at some point, like, oh, I want to own a Subway. I want to own a Starbucks. They, they want to get into the franchise business because they're everywhere. And, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of good things out there, but it's not as easy as sometimes people think of just, hey, put some money into it. It's, it's definitely, and correct me if I'm wrong, more of a active investment uh, versus a passive investment, at least if you're the one operating uh, it. So if you can just give us a high level uh, summary. So obviously you invest money, you get the business model, you get the stores, and then you're essentially running it as an owner and you're using their blueprint and track record to essentially leverage for your business. Is that exactly right? every franchise is different. And so what's important is first off, you believe in the concept, you love the product, whatever it is. Uh, and yes, you are given the blueprint. So in like Crumble, we're given the ingredients, we're given the recipes, um, <clears throat> the technology. And like really our main job is to to maintain, you know, obviously great customer service, great, great quality of the product, but it really just comes to running down the, running the day-to-day -day operations, uh, managing the culture, hiring, running the shifts. Uh, and so, you know, the franchise world is great, um, but you, you need to be a good operator. You need to be good with, you know, various personalities, um, understand kind of the, the mix of people in your, your, you're hiring typically young people in their first or second jobs. Um, and so it, it really comes down to an operator. And if you're not an operator yourself, but you have the vision, you sure as hell want to find a quality operator that's going to allow you to go from one store to multiple stores. Yeah. Do you think what you did in just college helped you in the crumble world or was it a completely different role for you? For sure. Without a doubt helped me. Um, you know, we've been fortunate enough to grow pretty fast at Crumble relative to the, the other, you know, franchise owners. Uh, and I think what I learned at Just College was surround yourself with good people. So if you have to give a little bit up at the pie, you have to make a little bit less money, but it's worth, you know, the headache or the lack thereof headache. Um, that's what we've learned. And we've been fortunate enough to hire very, very good people. You know, I've been lucky enough for a wife to to quit her job <laughs> to run the day-to-day -day operations for us. Yeah. What type of investor would you recommend to look into a franchise model? It all depends on the person. Uh, you know, there's people that go and take SBA loans out, take a second mortgage on their home. Uh, some people that have, you know, the bankroll, they can do it themselves. Um it really just depends on your situation, where you're at, um, the assets you have, what you're willing to risk. Um, you know, how we did it is we, we, we put some money into ourselves uh, and then we found, you know, key people that I've been associated with for, you know, the previous years in just college that, you know, I raised money from. Mm. Um, so I, you know, I chose to go down that path because I, I truly believe that, I, again, I'm an entrepreneur and I don't think that's ever going to change. And if you can make money for people once, fortunate enough to make money for people twice they're going to continue taking risks on you yeah and as long as you have a good batting average they're they're going to continue willing to invest in you and in whatever projects next yeah no 100 percent. and so you opened up one store you obviously saw the value you saw that it could potentially turn into something big and then was it hey let me go and expand this and start opening up uh, outside money and investors or what what went from you just handling this venture by yourself to now raising money uh, to add more stores to your resume? 
our goal was always to build something big. <clears throat> so we hired out of the gates, planning on expansion. We overhired substantially. Um, and so that was kind of our goal. And, you know, you know, I, I obviously was fortunate, but I didn't have enough money to build five stores myself. Sure. We're at six now open. It's expensive. Um, and so it was prove the concept once, show the numbers, and then continue to go into outside parties, families and friends, network, uh, and show them show them how it's worked once, and hopefully it's rinse and repeat. Uh, so it was mainly because I couldn't do it myself. Uh, I couldn't fund it all myself. <clears throat> and so my my aspirations were, were large, and the only way to get to m- many stores and be a multi-owner franchisee or multi-unit, sorry, was from finding outside money. Yeah. What does that process look like? Uh, because I think there's a lot of people out there that maybe are good operators or good visionaries. Maybe they're good at finding commercial real estate or they're good at you know finding trends before other people see it, but they don't have the resources in order to go start that business themselves. What can the average person do or what does that process look like for someone that has a good business plan or a good vision but doesn't have the resources or maybe even the network to go out there and raise? Solutions are you can find a partner that may have those connections, that may have the access to raise capital. Um, that's a solution if you're willing to you know, give up some of the pie and bring somebody in that may be more talented in that area. And it's just you know, trial and error. Mm. You know, find some wealthy people that you know, may be friends of a friend and get on calls with them. Explain to them opportunity, and you're going to learn. You're not going to be very good at your first call. You may sound like an idiot, but that's okay. Because you'll learn from each and every call, each and every mistake. And what's important is you explain the vision. And then you explain the business plan, how you're going to put into action. Uh, and you need to convince people why it's a, you know, a safe, risky investment. And wh- most people invest money into people they believe in. So if you're confident in yourself and you can portray that to people, um, th- I would say that's the most important. Yeah. I mean, that's why I invested with you. I don't know nothing about cookies, nothing about franchises. It's like, oh, I think Bo's done pretty well in the past. Like, yeah, I'll give him 50 grand, whatever. <laughs> uh, I know you have a hard stop here soon, Bo, so I, I definitely want to talk about your most recent venture. So as of last year, uh, you launched your most recent company, All Roads Travel. Uh, what was that headspace like? What was the why behind launching it? And what does that look like today? Oh, that was a good story. So <clears throat> sold my company. Um, Worked for the company for for some time that bought us. Um, It was a good run. Again, I had my year. uh, I took off a little bit. Um, But it was was probably the most stressful time of my life. So All Roads Travel kind of got formed out of necessity and desperation. Mm. Um, And so what happened is we still do spring break trips, Vegas trips, all these trips for college students. And we had about 17 or 18,000 students sold on future trips, whether it was trips to Vegas for senior year, whether it was spring breaks in Mexico. And, you know, very similar to kind of the WeWork show documentary story, um, maybe a little bit different. You know, unfortunately, the, you know, the leadership in the company that bought my former company uh, liked to live large enjoy themselves. Don't get me wrong. I enjoyed part of that being, you know, an executive at the company, but the cash flow was mismanaged Mm. and the company went bankrupt. Mm. Uh, And so we had 17,000 students or 18, whatever it was, students that had paid trips, anywhere from 500 bucks to 1500 bucks of college students that were looking forward to a trip of a lifetime. And when a company goes bankrupt, it's gone. And so... (laughs) What we had to do is we, we rallied together and we were in a time crunch and we're like, if we don't do something and we don't solve this, this is going to be worldwide news. 17,000 college students, trips, canceled, money lost, gone, poof, bye-bye. Sheesh. So All Roads Travel was formed out of like desperation and then also like our team. We had team members that hadn't been paid for over two months. So they're freaking out what to do. And so we kind of just rallied the troops together and we said – we got to do this for our team members and we got to do this for the students and the the reputation of this industry. And so we raised a good amount of money, went $7 million in debt, executed the trips that were formerly sold by the, the previous company and formed All Roads Travel, the new brand, put on spring break last year, Vegas last year, and kind of started from scratch. Dang, man. 
Dang. I mean, it, it's a good story for people out there that, hey, once you sell a company and you think you make it big, like it's just not all sunshine and rainbows. You know, there's always adversity, new levels, new devils. You know, the higher they go, higher you go, the more challenges they are. And I think it's just a good testament to there is no finish line. You know, you continue to evolve, you continue to adapt. I guess, you know, we're, we're wrapping up here, but what do you think you've learned from that experience, if anything? Obviously, it's not your fault the money was mismanaged. Obviously, it's, you know, none of this is your fault, but obviously there's always things to learn from this experience. What do you think life um, and this marketplace experience was teaching you for future endeavors? I'm a pretty, like, positive thinking guy, so I always, you know, think everything's going to work out well. Um, and usually, usually buy into things I'm passionate about. You know, so I think it's preparing for worst case scenario. I was not prepared. Um, <clears throat> bought a lot of homes, upgraded my home, moved into this, and it, it was a drastic change. Mm. I was making a lot of money, and then all of a sudden overnight, I was basically spending half the money I made to save this. So if I prepared for worst case scenario, I wouldn't have found myself in a financially tough place where the last year and a half were definitely an adjustment in terms of my spending, how we were living. Um, but I always prepare for worst case scenario when everything is not always going to be perfect. You may have a really good couple of years, but then you're going to have a real shit year. And if you're not prepared for that shit year, it's going to eat you up. It's going to hurt emotionally. And it may be harder to get out of that rut. So it was, it was definitely the most challenging part of my life. But at the same time, I'm seeing my way out now. Um, so it's, it's rather rewarding where I definitely had a couple of financial hard years, but now things are really looking promising for the future. Um, and part of it comes down to that grind, that work ethic, refusal to lose and do whatever it takes. Sound advice. Hope y'all are listening. You need to rewind mm -hmm. that part for all you over leveragers. That's, that's some nugs. Um, Bo, my last question as we're wrapping up, man. So obviously you've been in the entrepreneur game for a while. You've had some big wins. You've had some adversity, some challenges. If the Bo back in 2010, who just graduated college, who was ambitious, who had all this desire and vision, if the Bow today, fast forward, you know, 23 years, 13 years, could give that Bow advice, what would that advice be? <laughs> Everything's not the end of the world. Um, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> I guess, yeah, that's a, that's a tough question because I, I took, I used to take things pretty seriously, um, you know, and react. So I think patience, being a little bit more patient, everything isn't going to work overnight, be, be more confident in yourself, um, you know, and just, and just understand like everything's going to be okay. As long as you believe in yourself, you'll be fine and just learn to have a little bit more patience. So luckily it's taken me 13 years to be a little bit more patient. I still, I think I have a lot to improve, um, but yeah, be okay with the downs and, and be patient amidst chaos. Mm. Well said, man. Well said. Well, dude, you've been amazing. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, where can the viewers find you if they want to connect, potentially invest in any future endeavors or just want to check you out? Easiest way is, uh, I don't use my Instagram much. You can use it though. LinkedIn is probably the best. However, I get ma messages all the time. So if you want to connect with me, it's probably just email me uh, and that I can be reached at bo, bo at allroadstravel.com or bo at justcollege.com. That's no T, J-U-S college.com. And if you want to get in contact with me, email is probably the best or you can LinkedIn request me, message me, but there's, there's no guarantee I, I end up seeing the message. Mm. Boom. Guys, thank you so much, Bo. Appreciate you coming on the show, bro. It's been uh, it's been a fun time, ton of wisdom, masterclass on startups and how to go create a legitimate business and sell it. So, guys, thank you so much. We'll see you on the next episode next week. Peace.